Hello, and welcome to the final reports on January 6th, a reading. I am your host, Robert Keniston. This is episode 26. In this episode, we'll begin chapter 7, 187 minutes of dereliction. Reading this portion of the report will be Lauren Holiday. So, without further ado, let's begin. Seven. 187 minutes of dereliction. At 1.10 p.m. on January 6th, President Trump concluded his speech at the Ellipse. By that time, the attack on the U.S. Capitol had already begun, but it was about to get much worse. The president told thousands of people in attendance to march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol. He told them to fight like hell, because if they didn't, they were not going to have a country anymore. Not everyone who left the Ellipse did as the commander-in-chief ordered, but many of them did. The fighting intensified during the hours that followed. By 1.21 p.m., President Trump was informed that the Capitol was under attack. He could have interceded immediately, but the president chose not to do so. It was not until 4.17 p.m. that President Trump finally tweeted a video in which he told the rioters to go home. The 187 minutes between the end of President Trump's speech and when he finally told the mob to leave the U.S. Capitol was a dereliction of duty. In the U.S. military, a service member is deemed to be derelict in the performance of duties when that person willfully or negligently fails to perform that person's duties or when that person performs them in a culpably inefficient manner. As Commander-in-Chief, President Trump had the power— more than any other American, to muster the U.S. government's resources and end the attack on the U.S. Capitol. He willfully remained idle, even as others, including his own vice president, acted. President Trump could have called top officials at the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, the FBI, the Capitol Police Department, or the D.C. Mayor's Office to ensure that they quelled the violence. He made no such calls. Instead, President Trump reached out to Rudolph Giuliani and friendly members of Congress, seeking their assistance in delaying the joint session of Congress. And the president tweeted at 2.24 p.m. at the height of the violence that his own vice president lacked the courage to act, a statement that could only further enrage the mob. Meanwhile, Vice President Michael Pence assumed the duties of the president, requesting the assistance of top officials even though he was not in the chain of command and had no constitutional power to issue orders. In testimony before the Select Committee, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley explained that President Trump did nothing, zero, to marshal the government's resources during the assault on the U.S. Capitol. In contrast, Vice President Pence had two or three calls with General Milley and other military officials, even as the mob hunted him. During those calls, Vice President Pence was very animated and issued very explicit, very direct, unambiguous orders. The Vice President told Acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller to get the military down here, get the National Guard down here, and put down this situation. President Trump could have made those same demands. He chose not to do so, a damning fact that President Trump's own Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, quickly tried to cover up. 
We have to kill the narrative that the vice president is making all the decisions, General Milley recalled Meadows as saying. We need to establish the narrative, you know, that the president is still in charge and that things are steady or stable, Meadows said, which General Milley described as a red flag. In his testimony, General Milley also reflected on what it meant for a president not to be taking action in a time of crisis. You know, you're the commander-in-chief. You've got an assault going on on the capital of the United States of America, and there's nothing? No call? Nothing. Zero? And it's not my place to, you know, pass judgment, or I'm the, you know, but no attempt to call the Secretary of Defense, no attempt to call the Vice President of the United States of America, who's down on the scene? To my knowledge, it wasn't. I just noted it. President Trump's closest advisors, both inside and out of the White House, implored him to act sooner. Earlier in the week, two of the president's most trusted aides, Eric Hirschman and Hope Hicks, both wanted President Trump to emphasize that January 6th would be a peaceful protest. President Trump refused. On the 6th, as the riot began to escalate, a colleague texted Hicks and wrote, Hey, I know you're seeing this but he really should tweet something about being non-violent. I'm not there, Hicks replied. I suggested it several times Monday and Tuesday, and he refused. Once the attack was underway, President Trump initially ignored the counsel of his own family, members of his administration, Republican elected officials, and friendly Fox News personalities. Both Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. wanted their father to tell the rioters to go home sooner. The president delayed. At 2.38 p.m., President Trump sent this tweet. Please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful. Sarah Matthews, the White House Deputy Press Secretary, told the select committee that President Trump resisted using the word peaceful. The president added the words stay peaceful only after Ivanka Trump suggested the phrase. Trump Jr. quickly recognized that his father's tweet was insufficient. He's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Trump Jr. wrote in a text to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. President Trump did not tell the rioters to disperse in either his 2.38 p.m. tweet or another tweet at 3.13 p.m. Multiple witnesses told the select committee that minority leader Kevin McCarthy contacted the president and others around him, desperately trying to get him to act. McCarthy's entreaties led nowhere. I guess they're just more upset about the election theft than you are, President Trump told McCarthy. Top lawyers in the White House counsel's office attempted to intercede. Two Fox News primetime personalities, always so obsequious, begged those around the president to get him to do more. But President Trump was unmoved. There's no question that President Trump had the power to end the insurrection. He was not only the commander-in-chief of the U.S. military, but also of the rioters. One member of the mob, Stephen Ayers, told the select committee that he and others quickly complied as soon as President Trump finally told them to go home. We literally left right after President Trump's 4.17 p.m. video come out. You know, to me, if he would have done that earlier in the day, 1.30 p.m., maybe we wouldn't be in this bad of a situation or something, Ayers said. Another rioter, Jacob Chansley, 
commonly referred to as the QAnon shaman, was one of the first 30 rioters to enter the U.S. Capitol. Chansley told a reporter that he left the building because Trump asked everybody to go home. At 4.25 p.m., just eight minutes after President Trump tweeted his video, an Oath Keeper named Ed Vallejo messaged other members of his group, a fair number of whom were at the Capitol. Gentlemen, our Commander-in-Chief has just ordered us to go home. Comments? Even then, President Trump did not disavow the rioters. He endorsed their cause, openly sympathized with them, and repeated his big lie once again. I know your pain. I know your hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us, President Trump said at the beginning of his 4.17 p.m. video. It was a landslide election and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. The president portrayed the violence as something his political foes would use against him, saying, This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. The president concluded his short video by again praising the men and women who had overrun the U.S. Capitol. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special, President Trump said. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel, but go home and go home in peace. Just after 6 p.m. on January 6th, President Trump issued his final tweet of the day, again lauding the rioters and justifying their cause. President Trump made excuses for the riot, saying this is what happens when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who've been badly and unfairly treated for so long. The president added, Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. The following day, President Trump's advisors encouraged him to deliver a short speech denouncing the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The president struggled to deliver his prepared remarks. According to Cassidy Hutchinson, President Trump wanted to say that he would pardon the rioters. Lawyers in the White House Counsel's Office objected, so this language was not included. John McKenty, the director of the White House Presidential Personnel Office, also testified that in the days following the attack, he heard President Trump mention the possibility of a blanket pardon for all those involved in the events of January 6th. President Trump never did give up on the prospect. Since leaving office, the now former president has said he would consider full pardons with an apology to many of the January 6th defendants if he is re-elected. 7.1. Reinsert the Mike Pence Lines President Trump tweeted three times on the morning of January 6th repeating a false claim of election fraud at 8.06 a.m., pressuring Vice President Pence to delay the electoral count at 8.17 a.m., and urging Republican Party officials to do the same at 8.22 a.m. He made calls to his Republican allies in Congress, many of whom were already committed to objecting to the electoral count, and he dialed his lawyers and advisors, including Steve Bannon and Rudolph Giuliani, twice, both of whom had been counseling the president on how to stay in power. There was one person 
critical to his plan, whom President Trump tried to reach but couldn't. At 9.02 a.m., he asked the switchboard operator to call his vice president. Vice President Pence did not answer the call. Instead, between 9.52 a.m. and 10.18 a.m., the president spoke with his speechwriter, Stephen Miller, about the words he would deliver at the Save America rally just hours later. The former president's speech had come together over the course of 36 hours, going from a screed aimed at encouraging congressional objections to one that would ultimately incite mob violence. Only four minutes after the call concluded, at 10.22 a.m., Miller emailed revisions to the speechwriters, instructing them to start inputting these changes ASAP. That included red highlights marking POTUS edits. The president had made some cosmetic additions, like peppering in the word corrupt throughout, but there was one substantive edit, a new target, that would focus the crowd's anger on one man. None of the preceding drafts mentioned Vice President Pence whatsoever, but now, At the very last minute, President Trump slipped in the following sentences calling the vice president out by name. Today, we will see whether Republicans stand strong for the integrity of our elections. And we will see whether Mike Pence enters history as a truly great and courageous leader. All he has to do is refer the illegally submitted electoral votes back to the states that were given false and fraudulent information where they want to recertify. With only three of the seven states in question, we win and become president and have the power of the veto. No one on the speechwriting team could explain why President Trump added these lines just 30 minutes before he was originally scheduled to speak at 11 a.m. But by 10.49 a.m., Vincent Haley, a speechwriter who was helping load the teleprompter at the ellipse, was told to hold off and delete the mention of the vice president for now. Miller said that Eric Hirschman, a lawyer who was one of the president's senior advisors, asked him in a brief sidebar that morning to omit reference to the vice president and his role in the certification process because he didn't concur with the legal analysis and that it wouldn't advance the ball, but would be counterproductive instead. As detailed in Chapter 5, Hirschman and others in the White House were vocal critics of Dr. John Eastman's theory which claimed that the vice president had the unilateral power to reject electors during the joint session of Congress. President Trump repeatedly pressured Pence to either reject certified electors or delay the electoral count based on Eastman's unconstitutional and illegal theory. Vice President Pence would not budge. The vice president consistently rejected President Trump's demands. After tweeting four more times that morning, all of them spreading lies about the election, the president apparently thought he had one last chance to convince his number two to overrule the will of the American people. As recounted in Chapter 5, President Trump called Vice President Pence at 11.17 a.m. The call between the two men, during which the president soon grew frustrated or heated, visibly upset and angry, lasted nearly 20 minutes. And President Trump insulted Vice President Pence when he refused to obstruct or delay the joint session. After that call, General Keith Kellogg said that the people in the room immediately went back to editing the ellipse speech. At 11.30 a.m., Miller emailed his assistant, Robert Gabriel, with no text in the body but the subject line, Insert 
Stand by for phone call. At 11.33 a.m., Gabriel emailed the speechwriting team. Reinsert the Mike Pence lines. Confirm receipt. One minute later, speechwriter Ross Worthington confirmed that he had reached Fence and Haley by phone. Haley corroborated that he added one tough sentence about the vice president while he was at the teleprompter. The final written draft had the following Pence reference, and we will see whether Mike Pence enters history as a truly great and courageous leader. Haley wasn't confident that line was what he reinserted, but email traffic and teleprompter drafts produced by the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, indicate that he was mistaken. After defying President Trump's pressure, Vice President Pence, and the ire of the president he inspired, was back in the speech. After the heated call, President Trump's personal assistant, Nicholas Luna, handed him a message on White House cardstock, and the president departed for the ellipse to give his speech. Preserved by NARA, the message read, They are ready for you when you are. When it finally came time for him to speak, President Trump repeatedly directed his anger at Vice President Pence, often ad-libbing lines that were not included in the draft text. 7.2. I'll be there with you. From a tent backstage at the Ellipse, President Trump looked out at the crowd of approximately 53,000 supporters and became enraged. Just under half of those gathered, a sizable stretch of about 25,000 people, refused to walk through the magnetometers and be screened for weapons, leaving the venue looking half-empty to the television audience at home. According to testimony received by the committee, earlier that morning at the White House, the president was told that the onlookers were unwilling to pass through the magnetometers because they were armed. We have enough space, sir. They don't want to come in right now, Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato reportedly told President Trump. They have weapons that they don't want confiscated by the Secret Service. So, when President Trump got to the rally site and could see the crowd for himself, he was fucking furious, as Cassidy Hutchinson later texted Ornato. Hutchinson testified that just minutes before addressing the crowd, President Trump shouted to his advance team, I don't fucking care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the fucking mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Take the fucking mags away. By noon, President Trump took to the stage at the Ellipse. The president wanted all those in attendance, including those who hadn't passed through the magnetometers, to come closer to the stage. And I'd love to have, if those tens of thousands of people would be allowed, President Trump said. But I'd love it if they could be allowed to come up here with us. Is that possible? Can you just let them come up, please? President Trump repeatedly made it clear to those around him in the days before January 6th that he wanted to march to the Capitol alongside his supporters. That is, President Trump wanted to join his supporters in what the Secret Service refers to as an off-the-record movement, or OTR. While the president spoke, Hutchinson texted Ornato. He also kept mentioning OTR to Capitol before he took the stage. Minutes before the president stepped out, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows assured the president he was working on it. President Trump's plan to march appeared once in an early draft of the script. Then a later revision was made to add the word building after capital, making it clear exactly where the crowd should go. And the president repeatedly told the crowd that he would join them. 
After this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down, he said to the crowd. We're going to walk down to the Capitol, and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women, and we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. President Trump used the phrase scripted for him by his White House speechwriters peacefully and patriotically once, about 20 minutes into his speech. Then he spent the next 50 or so minutes amping up his crowd with lies about the election, attacking his own vice president and Republican members of Congress, and exhorting the crowd to fight. And we fight, we fight like hell, the president said to a crowd that had already spent the day chanting, fight for Trump, fight for Trump. And that would keep up the chorus when storming the Capitol. Finally, he told the crowd where to go to take back our country. So we're going to, we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol, and we're going to try and give, we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. When the president announced his intentions from the microphone, people listened. House Republican leader representative Kevin McCarthy called Hutchinson mid-speech. Do you guys think you're coming to my office? He asked her. She assured him that they weren't coming at all. Figure it out. Don't come up here, he replied. The announcement from the stage put the Secret Service on alert, prompting agents to designate over email a last-minute response team to filter in with the crowds on the president's walk-slash-motorcade over to the Capitol and establish an emergency plan if things go south. White House security officials were monitoring the situation in real time, remarking that President Trump was going to the Capitol and that they are finding the best route now. Nonetheless, these staffers were in a state of shock because they knew, particularly if the president joined, this would no longer be a rally. We all knew that this was going to move to something else if he physically walked to the Capitol, an employee said. I don't know if you want to use the word insurrection, coup, whatever. We all knew that this would move from a normal democratic public event into something else. But the logistics made the move all but impossible. It was complicated for the Secret Service to coordinate a presidential movement even on a normal day. But today was not a normal day. Tens of thousands of President Trump's supporters had flooded into downtown D.C. in the days before the rally, and the Secret Service would have to account for that unpredictability. By the end of the president's speech, it was clear that the crowd at the Capitol was growing violent. At 1.19 p.m., a Secret Service agent wrote to Bobby Engel, the head of President Trump's Secret Service detail, FYSA, Capitol Police, having serious challenges securing the Capitol. Nine priority breach attempts at this time. OTR to anywhere near there is not advisable. Give me a call when free. Front office concerned about OTR to the Capitol. 7.3. The President's Anger When He Could Not March to the Capitol. 
President Trump concluded his remarks at 1.10 p.m. Luna heard the president mention his intention to join the march to the Capitol after he finished his remarks. Just before the president got into his vehicle, Meadows told him, We're going to work on it, sir. President Trump was seated in his motorcade vehicle by 1.17 p.m. The committee received information informally from current and former members of the Secret Service and former White House staff relevant to what happened next. What a number of witnesses have described as an angry, irate, or furious interaction in the presidential vehicle between the president and the Secret Service. That initial information, received informally, shaped the committee's questioning of witnesses. The committee's principal concern was that the president actually intended to participate personally in the January 6th efforts at the Capitol, leading the effort to overturn the election either from inside the chamber or from a stage outside the Capitol. The committee regarded those facts as important because they are relevant to President Trump's intent on January 6th. But a book published by Mark Meadows in November 2021 made the categorical claim that the president never intended to travel to the Capitol that day. Because the Meadows book conflicted sharply with information that was being received by the committee, the committee became increasingly wary that witnesses might intentionally conceal what happened. In our initial informal discussion with the lead of the president's detail, Robert Engel confirmed that President Trump did wish to travel to the Capitol from the Ellipse, but stated that he did not recall many other details. But the committee also received information from Kaylee McEnany and Cassidy Hutchinson that also directly contradicted Mark Meadows' book and provided considerably more detail. McEnany testified that President Trump did indeed wish to travel to the Capitol on January 6th, and continued to have that goal even after returning from the Ellipse to the White House. McEnany, who spoke with President Trump shortly after he returned to the White House, recalls him expressing a desire to go to the Capitol. I recall him saying that he wanted to physically walk and be part of the march, and then saying that he would ride the beast if he needed to, ride in the presidential limo. When asked, McEnany confirmed that Yes, he did seem sincere about wanting to do that. Hutchinson's testimony was generally consistent with the information the select committee was receiving informally. Like McEnany, Hutchinson confirmed that the president did ask to be transported to Capitol Hill. Many other White House witnesses would ultimately confirm that President Trump wished to travel to the Capitol on January 6th, comprehensively rebutting the false statements in Meadows' book. Part of Hutchinson's account was a second-hand description of what occurred in the presidential vehicle, which built upon and was consistent with information the committee has received informally. Hutchinson testified that when she returned from the ellipse, Ornato was standing outside his office door when he waved me down, Hutchinson said. The two of them walked into Ornato's office, and he shut the door behind them. Engel was already there, sitting in a chair, looking down, kind of looking a little lost and kind of discombobulated. According to Hutchinson, Ornato then recounted a struggle in the president's car. At no point during Ornato's telling, or any point thereafter, did Engel indicate that what Ornato relayed was untrue. Another witness, a White House employee with national security responsibilities, 
provided the committee with a similar description. Ornato related the irate interaction in the presidential vehicle to this individual in Ornato's White House office with Engel present. And just as Hutchinson testified, this employee told the select committee that Engel listened to Ornato's retelling of the episode and did not dispute it. I don't remember his specific body language, but he did not deny the fact that the president was irate. Engel testified that he does not recall either the conversation with Hutchinson or the similar conversation with the White House employee with national security responsibilities. The committee regarded both Hutchinson and the corroborating testimony by the White House employee with national security responsibilities, national security official, as earnest and has no reason to conclude that either had a reason to invent their accounts. A different Secret Service agent, who served on a protective detail at the White House and was present in the presidential motorcade at the Ellipse, provided this view. Committee staff. Just a couple of additional questions. Miss Hutchinson has suggested to the committee that you sympathized with her after her testimony and believed her account. Is that accurate? Witness. I have no... Yeah, that's accurate. I have no reason. I mean, we... We became friends. We worked. I worked every day with her for six months. Yeah, she became a friend of mine. We had a good working relationship. I have no reason. She's never done me wrong. She's never lied that I know of. I don't have any reason. I don't. I don't distrust Miss Hutchinson. Also, the White House employee with national security responsibilities indicated that knowledge of the angry altercation in the presidential vehicle was known within the White House and was water cooler talk. In addition, Hutchinson has provided testimony to the committee about efforts by her prior counsel, who was apparently paid by a Trump-funded organization, to suggest that Hutchinson did not need to testify about the issue in the presidential vehicle, could suggest that she did not recall it or should downplay it. To further corroborate the accounts received of President Trump's intent to travel to the Capitol, the committee interviewed a member of the Metropolitan Police, who was also present in the motorcade, Officer Mark Robinson. Officer Robinson confirmed that he was aware, contemporaneously, of the heated discussion that took place in the presidential vehicle. Committee staff, and was there any description of what was occurring in the car? Mr. Robinson, no, only that the only description I received was that the president was upset and that he was adamant about going to the Capitol, and there was a heated discussion about that. Committee staff, when you say heated, is that your word, or is that the word that was described by the TS agent? Mr. Robinson, no, the word described by the TS agent, meaning that the president was upset, and he was saying there was a heated argument or discussion about going to the Capitol. Mr. Schiff, so about how many times would you say you've been part of that motorcade with the president? Mr. Robinson. Probably over a hundred times. Mr. Schiff. And in that hundred times, have you ever witnessed another discussion of an argument or a heated discussion with the president where the president was contradicting where he was supposed to go or what the Secret Service believed was safe? Mr. Robinson. No. The committee also interviewed the Secret Service agent who was in the same car as Officer Robinson. That person shared a similar account and confirmed that he did not take issue with Officer Robinson's testimony. 
The driver of the presidential car said something to the effect of, The president is pretty adamant that he wants to go to the Capitol, the agent said, recalling what he had heard on the 6th. In addition, the committee interviewed the USSS press secretary, who communicated with both Angle and with the driver in the presidential vehicle after Hutchinson appeared publicly. That witness indicated that Engel's account of the events confirmed that the president was indeed angry or furious. In fact, when asked about a reporter's tweet indicating that sources within the Secret Service confirmed that Trump was furious about not being able to go to the Capitol with his supporters, the press secretary said he certainly corroborated it with the reporter because that's what I had been told, you know, that the president was upset. He was agitated about not being able to go. In addition to the testimony above, the committee has reviewed hundreds of thousands of new Secret Service documents, including many demonstrating that the Secret Service had been informed of potential violence at the Capitol before the Ellipse rally on January 6th. These documents were critical to our understanding of what the Secret Service and White House knew about the threat to the Capitol on January 6th. The committee has also more recently conducted additional interviews with Engel and Ornato, and has also interviewed the driver of the presidential vehicle. Both Angle and the driver testified that, within 30 seconds of getting into the vehicle, the president asked if he could travel to the Capitol. This, again, is directly inconsistent with the account of events in Meadows' book. According to Angle, he told the president immediately that the move wasn't happening. The president was unhappy with Engel's response and began pushing pretty hard to go. The president repeatedly asked why he could not go to the Capitol. Engel replied that the Secret Service didn't have any people at the Capitol to provide the president with appropriate security. The president responded angrily, telling Engel and the driver, I'm the president and I'll decide where I get to go. He reassured Engel that it would essentially be fine and that the people there, meaning the people who were marching from the ellipse to the Capitol at President Trump's instruction, were Trump supporters or something to that effect. According to the Secret Service agent driving the vehicle, the president was animated and irritated about not going to the Capitol. According to Mr. Engel, he ultimately told the president that they would assess what our options were and wait until we can get a plan in place before we went down there. We note that the driver's account acknowledged President Trump's anger to a greater degree than either Engel's initial account in spring 2022 or his more recent account in November 2022. Engel did not characterize the exchange in the vehicle the way Hutchinson described the account she heard from Ornato, and indicated that he did not recall President Trump gesturing toward him. Engel did not recall being present when Ornato gave either Hutchinson or the White House employee with national security responsibilities an accounting of the events. The driver testified that he did not recall seeing what President Trump was doing and did not recall whether there was movement. The Select Committee has great respect for the men and women of the Secret Service. That said, it is difficult to fully reconcile the accounts of several of the witnesses who provided information with what we heard from Engel and Ornato. But the principal factual point here is clear and undisputed. President Trump specifically and repeatedly requested to be taken to the Capitol. He was insistent and angry and continued to push to travel to the Capitol even after returning to the White House. The motorcade didn't disband upon arriving to the White House, as they usually do. 
Instead, they were instructed to stand by in case the president's move to the Capitol did indeed happen. The select committee received a document from the Secret Service that reflects that at 1.25 p.m., PPD is advising that the president is planning on holding at the White House for the next approximate two hours, then moving to the Capitol. They had not made a decision whether or not we were going to transport the president to the Capitol, Robinson was told. Engel testified that he went to Ornato's office when he returned to the West Wing in order to discuss a possible move to the Capitol by President Trump. Given the deteriorating security conditions at the Capitol, it was quickly determined that they could not safely transport the president there. The motorcade waited on West Executive Drive approximately 40 minutes before finally receiving word from the Secret Service that the move had been officially nixed. Internal Secret Service communication bear this out. Not until 1.55 p.m. did Engel notify other agents via email that we are not doing an OTR to the Capitol. This podcast has been a production of 2008 Studios under a contract with SAG-AFTRA. Casting support services has been provided by Breakdown Services. The recordings herein are property of 2008 LLC. Any inquiries to collaborate or contact can be sent to info at 2008.com. That's info at 20-08.com. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please feel free to share this podcast. And, of course, please subscribe to be updated on future episodes. Thank you for listening.